Hello and welcome to my conversation today with Isabel Reinecke about her fabulous new essay in the Monash uh, in the National Interest series, uh, Courting Power, Law, Democracy and the Public Interest in Australia. I'm Emma Dawson. Uh, it's good to see those of you I haven't seen for a while. I've been away, but I'm back at, at, uh, at the desk. Um, and I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are gathered here. I am coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung people and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their uh, elders past and present, um, regardless of the disappointing outcome of the re uh, recent referendum. We are on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, thank you for joining us on your lunch break uh, today for uh, this webinar in our series. Um, I'm particularly chuffed to be talking with Isabel. We're fellow fellows at the Women's <laughs> Leadership Institute of Australia. Uh, welcome, Isabel. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I told Emma just before we started, no matter what I do, I still find a way for something to buzz. And I think that my phone just started ringing. So I'm sorry about that. I'm <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and it's a particularly timely conversation we're having, Isabel, because the first thing I want to do is congratulate you and your team at Grata Fund for a win in the High Court today. Thank you. Yes, it's amazing news this morning. We knew that we were getting a decision at 10am this morning. Obviously, you never know which way it's going to go. And um, this is a case that was brought by two now sadly past um, leaders from um, uh, Santa Teresa, which is about an hour out of Alice Springs. It's a remote community. And they had brought a series of, of cases or what turned out to be a series of cases in response to really terrible housing conditions in the Territory. Um, you know, what what people in the community there were facing were, you know, over 600 urgent repairs that had been ignored by the NT government, their landlord for years and years and years. Um, they finally brought litigation that established that they have a right to humane housing. It's one of those funny things where you think, God, why does it require litigation to establish that? But exactly. it did. It did. And, you know, I mean, the Territory Government did everything it could to get out of that case, including threatening the community with $2 million in, in rental arrears that once it got to court, the court chucked out immediately because there was absolutely no evidence for, for that claim. Um, but the, the community continued and, and really was arguing that they deserved compensation, not just for the physical damage or the physical, for example, in um, Ms Young's uh, situation, she didn't have a back door and didn't have a lock on that back door for five years, among a range of other problems. Um, and in the same way that if you or I had a, didn't have a back door, that leads to a kind of this, you know, constant state of stress and concern about no ability to just sort of be in your home comfortably and safely or leave it. Um, and the High Court today has recognised that, yes, you are actually entitled to compensation for that distress as well. It's really exciting, <laughs> really massive win that has implications for actually government tenants around the country, which is really exciting. It does, um, yeah. Yeah. Something that with my colleagues and Matt Lloyd Cape and Lucy Tonkin and Margaret uh, McKenzie at the Centre for Equitable Housing, we were really, we've been taking such a deep dive into housing rights and regulations. And as you said, just to find that there are no standard rental regulations or no standard rental quality requirements yeah. across the country, but to see that even in public housing where the government is the landlord, something exactly. that's quite shocking to people. And, and yeah, I mean, the other thing as well that I think really has struck me about this situation, this case, is that people are paying really expensive rents for these mm. properties as well. You know, it's not as though it's some sort of gifted property mm. that's crap. I mean, not that that would even be okay, but, you know, people are paying, Ms Young was paying more rent than I was paying for her essentially shed than I was paying in Tamarama in Sydney. I mean, it's really 
despicable. Um, but you know, she'll be compensated for for her her rent there, or her state will be compensated for her rent for over that period. But now she'll also be able to be compensated for the distress that that caused. Um, and I think the thing for us at Grata is we, you know, we're not the litigators ourselves. We're not we're not Ms. Young or the community's legal team. We work to sort of connect the dots strategically behind the scenes. So we provide the philanthropic funding um, that's needed to get these cases through court. Uh, and we also provide the kind of campaign strategy and legal strategy around the cases. So the her lawyers are um, Australian lawyers from remote Aboriginal rights and with their barrister Matt Albert from the Victorian Bar, really terrific pro bono team. Um, but for us at Grada, really the strategy long term for a case like this is to make the compensation bill so extraordinarily high for the Territory that they are forced to come to the negotiating table and start to co-design housing policy with community legal service organisations, with community control organisations, which they've been avoiding doing for a long time. It's such an important win, um, not just for the people directly affected, but as you just noted, for the future of how we devise, develop, deliver uh, social housing across the country. Um, so thank you on behalf of those <laughs> of us that are very concerned with social housing provision, and particularly in remote communities. Um, you touched on there a little bit about Grata's role in this case. And for those um, joining us today that don't know much about Grata, before we get into the, the broader philosophical challenges posed by your excellent essay, um, tell us a little bit about how Grata came to be, why you started it and what it does. Sure. Um, so my background was in corporate law and then I also spent time in nonprofits and um you know, doing all sorts of nonprofit sort of work, including working on stolen wages in remote WA, um, working at GetUp as head of legal, um, but started my career at kind of one of the big bad firms at Clayton Newts. Um, and, you know, once I was at GetUp, I really saw that, you know, if you could combine the power of law and courts and what they provide if you have the financial means with the power of, of community activism and campaigning, you really had this potential for, for creating big change where other mechanisms have failed. So litigation is really, really powerful where you've got intractable issues where governments or corporates can, sorry, can't or won't act. Um, and so you kind of, I guess, start to worry less about whether they're doing what they're doing because they don't want to or because they can't and you focus on actually just making sure that they obey the law. Um, so with that kind of principle in mind, I'm sort of wondering why aren't we having more of this sort of big litigation in Australia the way you see globally? Um, and the answer to that question is complicated, but part of it is um, our adverse cost system. Um, and that means for anyone who is lucky enough to have not participated in litigation, that means that if you bring litigation, you have to pay the other side's legal bill if you lose. And that's a pretty fair principle for, for the most part. So, you know, if you're Coles and you've sued Woolworths, you have to pay <laughs> the other side's bill, um, you, know, you know, in private disputes as well. But when you're talking about a remote community trying to enforce their legal rights, it's completely unacceptable. And the rest of the world has adapted their laws to make it possible for people in the public interest to bring cases, um, but Australia hasn't. Um, and so to that end, the starting point was, okay, well, we can reform the adverse cost system. There's been, you know, multiple law reform commission reports at multiple jurisdictions to change the system. Nothing's happened. Um, let's work on that long-term, but let's just move some money in the interim. And so I started working with philanthropists to kind of insure people. So without any premium. So saying to people, look, if you take this case, and you lose and you need to pay costs, we'll cover it for you. And that was sort of the starting point. 
Um, but then what kind of grew out of that is I, you know, obviously my experience at GetUp being quite influential, but then also going overseas on a Churchill Fellowship and meeting all the kind of granddaddies, or I should maybe say grandmummers of strategic litigation globally and um, really learning from them in terms of how you maximise the impact of litigation, both to build community power through the timeline of litigation and, and kind of community building and community organising over the stretch of the litigation cycle, but also um, using the, the attention that's drawn by litigation of media and decision makers to really create change outside of the court. And so from there, what has developed is our kind of current organisation, which is really focused on supporting high impact strategic litigation and providing wraparound campaign support for cases that focus on democracy, climate justice and human rights, which is sort of everything. Um, and I, I kind of started it with, with that in mind because I just didn't know whether the need was going to be, but as it turns out, the need is is everywhere. Um, and, you know, that means that we've kind of had the great pleasure and privilege to work on really amazing cases like that out of Santa Teresa that won today. Well, um, thank you for the work you've done. I mean, I obviously... Uh, the longer-term goal will be to see Australia reform its system so that public interest cases don't attract the same, um, what is effectively a, a penalty or a disincentive to proceed. But in the meantime, having greater funds clearly making a difference, as shown today. So It would be nice to do ourselves out of business. <laughs> we actually are having some kind of success to start with, actually, um, out of the, res the respect at work reform. So um, the Human Rights Commission recommended that costs be changed in sex discrimination um, litigation and we have been working with the Attorney General's Department to try and get that into a good position so it looks like we will have a bill introduced to Parliament pretty soon that should reform that for sex discrimination so that's an exciting starting point and we'll keep going from there. In end of the wedge as they say we use it yes. to <laughs> exactly. um, Well yeah congratulations again and um, I'll move on now to talking more broadly about your excellent essay and point out to those watching that uh, in the chat Meredith on my team has posted a link uh, where you can buy this essay with a 20% discount just for joining us today. And I do recommend you do so. It's very uh, accessible, readable, but um, really concentrates my mind on what has happened over the last kind of 30 years or so that, that we've been a little bit like boiling frogs in Australia uh, when it comes to the attacks on our judiciary. We see what has happened in the US, obviously, with the stacking of the Supreme Court, with decades of conservative um, agitation to really push a very conservative view on the court system over there. Uh, many of us were appalled recently. Um, looking at the Middle East is is just a daily exercise in being appalled and distressed at the moment. But looking at um, Netanyahu's attacks on the on the judiciary in Israel. But what you so cogently point out in this essay is that we've seen a similar occurrence here. It's been more muted, um, but it's certainly since the Marbo and the Wick decisions in the 90s, we've seen growing uh, undermining of the independence in our court and a lot of conservative voices importing what we see as those US arguments around judicial activism. Um, take us through a bit of the history that you cover without without spoiling the essay for those yet. Um, yes, I mean, I think... Um, you know, the key thing to to watch for uh, is when First Nations rights are at stake and when particularly land rights are at stake. So what you first saw was immediately post-Marbo 
was these pretty ferocious attacks on and weak and pretty ferocious attacks on the judiciary, quite personalized attacks um, from senior politicians, but also the kind of commentariat. Um, but senior politicians, including um, who was to become, and then at the time, Deputy PM Tim Fisher, really calling for in papers uh, the appointment of capital C political conservatives to the High Court as a way of dealing with this terrible thing that was the Mabo decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and the establishment of Samuel Griffith Society, which, you know, was recently in a Janet Albrechtson column as the, you know, the birthplace of the no ca- referendum campaign um, last year, which sort of says it all. Mm. Um, and um, really what there was was this reaction from, you know, agriculturalists, pastoralists and so on saying the court's gone too far. Yeah. Um, it's completely inappropriate for the role of the court, which is, you know, antithetical to actually the entire legal community and, you know, very senior members of the legal community who were pretty quick to rebuff those sorts of attacks. Mm. Um, but um, that was sort of just the beginning. And uh, since then, you know, I think the those the, those attackers learnt their lesson, that they'd gone too far, they'd gone too hard, too direct to the bench. And instead what happened is a sort of transmission of that kind of attack on the court system and really went beyond the courts as well. So there were the attacks on courts, but also then attacks on the ecosystem that enable the court to do its job. So, for example, um, environmental um, organisations like the EDO were committing vigilante lawfare through their environmental litigation. Um, Dutton was calling the um, lawyers for refugees un-Australian for doing their work. Um, and then we also saw the um, um, importation of um, this language of judicial activism. And so really, if you see judicial activism raised, literally what that is telling you is that person doesn't like the outcome, but they have no legal analysis of, of the decision. <laughs> and so even Robert French was sort of asked, um, his his honour, former Chief Justice of the High Court, was asked in his press club address just before the referendum, I think the first question he was asked was, you know, what about judicial activism? To which he said, you know, it's there's no such thing, really. Well, if you see it, it's sort of a, a red flag for you. Mm. Um, but that language has been pervasive. And I, I think it's had a few different impacts um, in the court system today. Um, one, which is the most obvious and direct um, and probably causal, which is the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So the AAT, where you go for your first sort of dispute resolution if you've got a problem with the government. So you've had a FOI rejected, you've had a, a visa rejected or so on. Um, you had a robo-debt complaint. And, you know, what what we were seeing was that if you had been appointed by a coalition member, you were twice as likely to have your visa rejected if you were a refugee applicant. Mm. And that was still holding for all of the other variations. So it was a massively politicised result that you were getting to the point that Dreyfus announced that he would be disbanding it when Labor was elected. Mm. And so we're yet to see what this new version of the AAT looks like. But that's pretty significant if you're seeing you're literally one of the most foundational tribunals in the country, one of the most accessible in terms of the costs, Mm. um, actually having to be disbanded after 50 years of kind of bipartisan running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think um, it became increasingly egregious over the last few years of the, the previous government. But as you say, to get to the point where the incoming at- Attorney General says, actually, so broken, can't fix it, have to start from scratch, is is really telling of, of just how those appointments um, have skewed, have skewed the, the operation of justice. Um we were talking briefly before this and um, we we were in furious agreement when I was reading the book. What emerged really strongly to me was that most of these or all of these disputes around 
you know, um, activist judges, judicial activism, the conservative voices calling for a black letter interpretation of the constitution. In America, that's tended to be most obviously around reproductive rights, um, uh, most recently in the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Here it's about property rights, isn't it? It's about land, really, uh, whether it's it's Marbo and Wick or whether it's uh, refugees managing who comes into the country. It's really those, those disputes emerge when uh, people feel that the, the court is threatening the right of the white man, of the settler of the colonias to control this country. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier and, you know, I really think, especially out of the result of the referendum and how that was won and the lines that were persuasive for that campaign, I really see land rights and the Mabo decision becoming the sort of central organising pillar of conservatives in Australia or kind of deep conservatives in Australia in the same way that Roe v Wade and abortion rights access was in the US and has been in the US. Um, I think that they're, they're less likely to have success on um, turning back Marbo, but they could have success in other other ways that are profound in terms of people's experience in the world, not just in court, but outside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it, to to that exact point. So you know, I mentioned that you know there was this immediate kind of Marbo wick um, furor that was directed really pointedly at, at the judges, yeah. and then you didn't really see that again at the high court level, not in a serious coordinated way until the Love and Tom's decision in 2020. And that decision was a decision by the High Court that effectively the Australian government can't deport Aboriginal people from Australia uh, and strip them of their citizenship, Mm. even if they'd been born, for example, in Papua New Guinea. So there was an instance of a couple of men who had been born overseas, one in Papua New Guinea, one in New Zealand, but who very much were First Nations people of Australia in kind of every sense of the world, of of the word rather, um, and, you know, hadn't spent much time in their countries of birth at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Australian government had given itself the power to deport people who had been convicted of a crime over a certain length of time um, as non-citizens if they'd been born overseas. But the court said, no, there is this special connection with this place for First Nations people that cannot be replaced. And that builds on Marbo's, on the Marbo precedent. And that's really threatening to a group of people who, as you say, you know, are concerned about connection to land and ownership of land, because what that is again doing is acknowledging this special connection to this continent that is unique to First Nations people. And that's very threatening. Mm -hmm. And so after that decision is when you then saw this absolutely massive wave of attack on the High Court, you know, printing out everyone's photos, whether they'd voted for or against, you know, whether a good judge or a bad judge, purely based on whether they disagreed or agreed um, with the decision. And and then calling very explicitly again in, in Tim Fisher style for the appointment of capital C political conservatives, mm. um, you know, including, you know, uh, Senator Amanda Stoker, Senator James Patterson, you know, making significant speeches actually at Samuel Griffith Society conferences calling for those appointments um, as, a res- as a response to that decision, um, calling for um, in different places Samuel Griffith Society or some other entity to do a better job of the sort of work that the Federalist Society does in the US and, you know, is sort of responsible for the movement that has led to the reversal of Roe v. Wade and another a, a range of other important rights cases in the US. Mm-hmm. And I thought at the time, oh, this is this is funny, they've, they've overstepped again. They've gone too far. You know, interesting that they've given it another crack, but you know, they won't, they won't kind of get away with it. And I think what was alarming to me was that so two appointments were up in 2020. Yep. 
to the high court and you know people retire at a certain age which means that you know spaces become available and that means Christian Porter as Attorney General had the opportunity to appoint two judges those two judges were both celebrated by the IPA as as wins IPA one of the kind of lead campaign voices for the appointment of political conservatives Mm -hmm. um and by you know all means people create you know claim wins sometimes when they don't necessarily have them sometimes when the person who's been claimed as a win wouldn't really appreciate it you know you've you've made it to the high court not just because you're a kind of floozy of the IPA um but the thing that I think was more alarming than the claiming of the win was then the decision of in particular one judge who was appointed Justice Simon Stewart mm-hmm. who in his first judgment relate uh, that considered the implied freedom of political communication which is this hugely significant precedent about 30 years old mm-hmm. a made around the same time as Marbo just before, um, which says that, you know, in order for our system to work properly, you need to be able to freely communicate um, political information. And an example of that would be voting. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't have voting rights in the Constitution, but our system couldn't work if you didn't have the right to express your political view through voting. And there's kind of lots of other iterations of that. Um, But Simon Stewart in that first judgment, despite everybody else on the court saying this is well-settled law, said, I don't think it's well-settled law, and essentially, you know, posed an invitation for how you would enable him to reopen, in his words, the the questions. And, you know, it's one judge and a bunch of seven, but um, I was really influenced particularly by the words of Professor Adrian Stone, who is a kind of absolutely eminent um, constitutional scholar out of Melbourne University and kind of not as well known as people like Anne Toomey and George Williams, but just does less press, but Mm. is kind of on that level. Um, And she said that, you know, she wouldn't have thought 15 years ago that Roe v. Wade could have been undone the way that it was. And she sees the same sorts of red flags in, um, in that judgment from Simon Stewart. And not just because of the judgment, but because of what I think is actually probably a more diffuse and sort of less causal, but I think there is a causal relationship, impact of this sort of anti-court kind of campaign, which is that the court has become, particularly in certain areas, particularly to do with constitutional issues, um, extremely um, rigid and, and technical in its approach and really avoids dealing with the substantive democratic principles that underpin decisions. Mm. So a decision like um, the implied freedom of political communication originally 30 years ago really was about, okay, what is the democratic principle we are trying to uphold? Thus, what does that mean for how we interpret the law? And what we've got now is, is courts that don't air those democratic principles, but of course they have them. It's impossible to make these decisions without them. And so that because they're not aired, they're not able to be interrogated. But also what it means is you have, you know, as as Professor Stone kind of talks about, this sort of um, brittle um, implied freedom doctrine. And, and what that, you know, what that might look like to, you know, the audience is, you know, you see a case being brought by Annika Smithhurst. She was raided by the AFP um, for producing stories about plans to spy on Australian people. Um, the day before or the day after, the AFP also raided the ABC for um, reporting on war crimes by Australian soldiers uh, committed in Afghanistan. Mm. And Annika Smethurst's case was successful in the High Court, but the court didn't deal at all with the democratic principle of a free press. Mm. It just went to, before getting to that point, to said, look, there's a technicality, there's a problem with the warrant. That's right. It was not lawful. And the AFP the next day put out a press release basically saying, no, it's okay, we just like got the warrant wrong. And then interestingly, you see the effect of that, the level down is the federal court 
makes a decision about the ABC being raided and says, no, you haven't breached the implied freedom. Mm. Because if we don't actually address in judgment the democratic principles, you have a flow-on effect that means there's these sort of random outcomes, but you also have these highly technical uh, kind of legal arguments and ways of determining a question that sort of end up eating themselves, Mm. which make them kind of brittle and and open to kind of long-term degradation through, you know, people potentially like Simon Stewart and others. And that's really the intention of these movements that are, you know, seeking to undermine the court is to to create that brittleness, to create that tension around the role of the court and to try to reduce the role of the court, as we've seen in America. And as when, when we talk here about those capital C conservative uh, judicial appointments, we're talking about people that or a movement that wants the courts only to interpret the Constitution in particular as it was written at the time it was written. So like a frozen document that that reflects the wishes of the federal, the, you know, the founding fathers, as they call them in America here, really the federalists that created our constitution and never let that become a living document that can grow, that can evolve with changed community norms, with contemporary values. Um, it's, it's restricting the court's ability to interpret the law against a moral or democratic framework, yeah? Exactly. I mean, I think the thing that makes I find alarming in the Australian context is there's less of a there's less of an interest in what in Australia than compared to America in like what did the guys who wrote the document think, which is good, um, but just basically just by ignoring democratic principles there's no way to make sense of decisions. You, you can't really even predict how things are going to go. So, you know, one case, for example, that we've been supportive of is um, Jenny Hocking's Palace Papers case, which succeeded in the High Court that, you know, various papers should have been released by National Archives. Um, she lost at the Federal Court. She lost the Federal Court of Appeal and she won in the High Court. And I remember sitting there in those High Court arguments thinking, this could really go either way. I mean, the, the words on the page give you so little that you go, you could literally, you could flip a point coin unless you are actually considering the democratic principles that are not even necessarily new democratic principles. The democratic principles that the, even the constitution back then was based on without without actually accepting some of those, you couldn't make a decision one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And because the high court doesn't deal with those principles in an, in an open manner, it has an impact on the lower courts as well. You know, if the high court was more willing to actually acknowledge those democratic principles that as I haven't necessarily changed in 100 years, um, those democratic principles could then be used in lower courts when they're making their decisions as well. So, you know, really Jenny shouldn't have had to go all the way to the high court to to kind of have that decision made. So it's sort of actually there's a lack of efficiency in it as well, I would say. Yeah, it's not, and for, you know, a a political ideology that's all about efficiency, it's a movement that's actually the irony. (laughs) Undermines it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, You mentioned Adrian Stone and and a couple of other, um, you know, eminent names in terms of constitutional experts, and Toomey, George Williams. Um, And I I want to put this essay now in the context of the post-referendum. We know the outcome, which you didn't when you were writing this, although we saw it coming in many ways. Um, And having read some of the um, typical or expected commentary from those um, within this movement, since I was struck particularly by a column by Janet Olbrickson in The Australian uh, a week or so ago, time is a a very nebulous uh, construct when one has jet lag, so I can't say exactly when it was, but um, in which she decried 
the words or the reactions of Anne Toomey and George Williams and others to the outcome of the referendum um, uh, who said, well, it, sh it should be difficult to change the constitution, but it shouldn't be impossible. Um, and her reaction to that was almost who will rid me of these meddlesome priests, you know. Um, uh, do you see, and I know I think we both are concerned, that in the post-referendum context these campaigns will step up and particularly around the constitutional right to who has the right to this land, whose land is it, who belongs here, who gets to say who comes and goes. Um, what are yeah. your particular fears about that now? Um, so... On the point about, you know, campaign and, and where to next, I think, there you know, there are a couple of things. Parnell McGuinness had an article in SMH, I'm sure it was in The Age as well, um, around the same time, saying Marbo is the problem. Yes. Marbo actually by <laughs> establishing land rights is the reason that we can't close the gap, which is just inherently absurd. It's a very <laughs> circular argument by Parnell. <laughs> yeah. But also written in a way that, you know, if you didn't know any different would kind of be persuasive. And so I think, you know, there is a recognition that maybe they've hit on some arguments that will be useful for them long term, which I think are things to be concerned about and aware of. Um, you know, how can that um the, the impact of the courts be used as part of a, a broader cultural war, which is, you know, exactly what's been done um, in the US. I was going to say something about her words about Anne and George. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, I in, in, a, in a funny way, I mean, I guess maybe it's not so surprising, but um, in some ways I feel sometimes... I mean, you probably have this too. You know, in some circles you feel very conservative, in some circles you feel very progressive. I mean, I always say I feel like a campaigner once I'm with lawyers and when I'm with lawyers, sorry, and when I'm with lawyers I feel like a campaigner. I always feel like I'm kind of in the wrong, but yes. in the wrong bunch. It's, it's um, a familiar feeling, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always kind of had this sort of like a small city conservative view that, you know, the institutions of democracy that we have are actually really good if they were actually working as they were meant to, right? So the courts are fundamentally, they make a lot of sense. If we can actually access them and they're impartial and so on, they're great, um, you know, representative democracy makes a lot of sense you know if you don't have the improper influence of lobbyists and money and you know it should work quite well and so on but I, I think with the referendum result and to kind of the comments of people like Antoomi and George Williams our constitution actually the fundamentals are wrong you know the fundamentals do not make sense you have to get the permission of the inheritors of a colonial legacy in order to change that system to include the people who were excluded in the first place like the, the fundamentals of that just aren't yeah. right they don't make any sense unlike kind of other aspects and you know what we do about that and how we can change it into the future is pretty daunting and I, I I don't honestly see what the pathway is um and so I guess what that does for me is just redirect my attention to what I know which is litigation and campaigning and I think you know, for grata over the kind of next five, 10 years, I think really for us, it'll be about doubling down on on how we work with communities to mm. use litigation as a tool for change, both for land rights, but also a diverse range of issues. Because, you know, across everything that we work on, which, as I say, is, you know, everything from freedom of information to climate change and everything in between, um, although there are overlaps on all of them, I think First Nations people face the most amount of illegal government activity of anyone probably 
almost on the, on a world scale, but certainly in the country. Absolutely. I mean, they're the most incarcerated people proportionally on the planet, and I would argue the most materially disadvantaged by comparison to the rest of the population. You know, they live in, in developing world conditions in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. So let's not, you know, pull punches about that. I think exactly. exactly. And, you know, the level of unlaw- of what I think is probably unlawful behaviour is completely wild, but also there is very limited capacity to uh, to litigate the issue. So, you know, you've got a legal service system that has been so whittled down to force legal services to really deal with the day in, day out, you know, the hundreds of the same issue over and over and over again of people coming into the system and, mm-hmm. and being supported to navigate it, whether that's a criminal system or, you know, some other, you know, a residential rights kind of system. Um, and so I think for us at Grada, it's really about building up the litigation capacity. And I think, you know, it's totally plausible. I mean, you see it in the in the climate space. Five years ago, the climate litigation landscape on the side of litigators holding governments and corporates accountable was nothing what it is now. The EDO had just been defunded. They were making plans to uh, make a federal organisation and they're now a very successful national organisation. Um, Equity Gen Lawyers, another new firm that's just started, um, Environmental Justice Australia was just starting out. I mean, we have a completely different landscape to five years ago, and I really hope that we'll have a completely different landscape again in another five years where we can actually start seeing some big um, sticks being used among kind of the other tools as well. And that's really, I think, a message I want to focus on today, you know, two, three weeks after that outcome, um, less than three weeks, isn't it, Uh, since the outcome of the referendum is that, referenda aren't the only means and often they're not the most efficient means to achieve meaningful change, that actually our um, uh, judicial system has delivered for First Nations people more than the political system has over the last 30 years and real advances have been made in that regard. It was interesting what you said then reminded me very much of what Paul Keating said last week, which is that, you know, he saw... Um, it is a folly to try to change the constitution of the colonialists in order to recognise the, the people that were here first. Um, and he did hark back to those decisions that were, you know, under his watch uh, when he was prime minister. Um, so it is calls for hope for us as a nation to think there are these avenues to go down, but we can expect more and more bitter backlash and the kinds of attacks that you cover so well in your essay as the next case proceeds and the one after that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I don't want to overstate the the pros of the judiciary too much in respect to First Nations people in particular. I mean, we know that there are these sort of ridiculous rates of over-incarceration by governments and by police, and the judiciary is part of that. And I think there are different parts of the judicial system that work in different ways to varying success. And, you know, I think one example which reflects both the worst of our system and the best of our system was we were... um, I was on country recently with Grata Fund and um, lawyers and the court um, on a big climate change case, um, which is being brought by two elders in the Torres Strait about climate change negligence by the Australian government. And we, um, I was talking with the court staff because, I mean, it's really funny. We're out on these, you know, beautiful islands in these amazing kind of community halls that have been transformed lovingly by the, by the communities, you know, with beautiful kind of weavings and flowers and flags and decoration. I mean, it's really amazing and a lovely place to be, um, kind of open air and you're in the kind of tropical kind of weather. And then in Cairns we had some follow-up hearings and in Cairns we were in like literally in like a 
office works kind of building. It was really weird. It was kind of like being in the office. Like it was honestly, so, it was so strange. The office is in the kind of satirical TV show. Um, and I remember talking to the court staff because we're going to be going back up there to Cairns um, in April for the closing arguments in that case and saying, you know, do you think we could find a bit of a nicer forum to be doing this? This feels a bit more, you know, special and significant for everybody who's coming along. And, you know, I sort of said, yeah, the Supreme Court building's pretty nice. Why don't we go over there? And he said, we at the federal court don't like to use Supreme Court buildings because there is such a strong association with the Supreme Court building for First Nations people and incarceration of First Nations people. Because usually if you're a First Nations person interacting with the Supreme Court building, it's because you or someone you love is being put into jail for often unreasonable circumstances, but also sometimes for reasonable circumstances, but have been caused by, you know, the complexities that we're all aware of. Um, and I thought, wow, that's really amazing. Like that's a, that's a real level of knowledge and dedication from within the court system at the federal court to say, no, we're not going to do that. But it also, you know, at the same time, is telling you a story about, you know, what the experience is for people, for First Nations people when they are interacting with that part of the, the judicial system as well. It is. It's, um, the opening of your essay is particularly affecting not only the way that you describe the impact of climate change on those Australian islands to our north, um, but the way that that uh, the court system has gone to the people and is really taking the judiciary and the democratic process to them and what an example that could be for the rest of our system. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, and what I realised actually in researching the, the essay was that, uh, and I talk about, is that the Marbo case was actually the first time that the court ever went on country. Mm. And it was so amazing to be part of this other case then all of these years later, you know, 30 odd years later, that the federal court was also going back out there. And, and the contrast in the court's approach back then versus today really shows how the court sort of improved. And I think also sort of, you know, in terms of the the result in, in the referendum, but also the legal community's backing of a yes position in the referendum partly reflects the the way that the legal system you know, through native title law or through other areas of law has actually, through attending on country hearings, has actually been forced to kind of understand and confront face-to-face -face the reality of First Nations law, L-O-R-E, cultural practices and so on, and really actually appreciate how real and, and valuable that those are, um, which I think sort of means that in some way the judicial system and, and some lawyers have sort of been um, educated in a way about First Nations cultures that the rest of the country could probably benefit from. Absolutely. Um, and uh, your essay is an excellent introduction to that. Um, it was a great outcome for you in the High Court today, but a couple of other significant decisions as well have come down um, around the Catholic Church's um, use of, you know, the death of priests to um, try and insulate itself against uh, claims from from those that have suffered um, abuse at the hands of the clergy, um, and probably the one that's most likely to attract the ire of uh, the people you talk about in your essay. Um, and I'm looking forward to Miss Albrechtson's next column. Do, sorry, Doctor Albrechtson's next column in the Australian, um, because there was a decision now by the high uh, by the High Court that the um, government's uh, stripping of citizenship of people convicted of terrorist offences, or certainly in the case of Benbreka, um, is is against the constitution. What, what, what sort of backlash do you expect to see to that one? I mean, it will be backlash from people who, who don't agree with the outcome, who want to be yes. able to do what they want to do. And I mean, in a way, I mean, for, for those people, I'm not sure how deep the 
philosophy goes, and I'm sure it's different for different people, but I mean, I think for some people at a surface level, it is literally just, I want to be able to do this thing. My government, you know, my government, the people, my party, the people who I've elected at a certain time want to be able to do this thing and thus they should be able to do it. But I think for some people, it goes to this deeper point, which is this idea that the executive and the legislature shouldn't be more, you know, shouldn't have to deal with the high court, that the high court, you know, there's this sort of language that came out of America that it was sort of counter-majoritarian for courts to do their job because the idea is that the majority said yes to this government and so they should be able to do what they want. But the reason, you know, if you go back (laughs) to conservative like first principles, actually, you know, the reason that you've got a court system there is because, you know, they they knew back in 1901 <laughs> that you you needed to have an accountability mechanism. It, it's not it's not good enough to expect an an electorate to be able to have the power to deliver accountability at an election term cycle. It's just not, and it, I mean that's just accelerated now with with the issues that we have today in terms of media cycles and and so on. But um, to me, that's that's this sort of I feel kind of funny because I think it's a kind of conservative point in a way is to say you know you've got an executive you've got a legislature and you've got an institution that is designed to hold them accountable why do we nationally not embrace that and and think of it in that way and you know it's interesting the high court has these very high approval ratings in terms of trusted government authorities it's I think just below the AFP which you know the AFP is number one tells you something else as well but um, you know it's very consistently the high court is rated as a very trusted body and you know, I think that also reflects the fact that or it's reflected in the fact that in the no campaign, the messaging, the original messaging about, you know, the voice being bad because of high court litigation and, and judges and so on, activist judges, it didn't get cut through at all. You know, it, it didn't, it wasn't effective as a message. What was effective as a message was the related point, you know, which is land rights, which are kind of connected back to the court. Um, but I think it, it does tell you a bit about where that kind of camp is coming from and where they're thinking about and they just don't want to be held accountable by the judiciary and I just think that that's just an untenable thing to to allow to happen and you see I mean there are far greater um, concerning things happening at the moment but you, you know you see out of Netanyahu's government this year as well you know the essentially the stripping of the court to be able to provide that sort of accountability role mm-hmm. um, and I don't think we're at any point anywhere near that in Australia, I think we've got a lot to be proud of. But I do think that if we aren't careful about holding onto it and protecting it now, and I think particularly, you know, on the left being very careful and strategic about how to respond, um, you know, I actually think the worst possible thing would to be have kind of this kind of progressive movement for progressive lawyers. I think it would just be progressive appointments. I think it'd be a disaster because then you kind of just inflame each other and you run down the rabbit hole to the US. But I do think that there is a... Um, a role for Australians in thinking about, okay, culturally, how do we care about and think about the court and its role? Um, But also how do we exercise that care? It's by actually accessing the courts and doing our role in the same way that it's a civic role to go to go to kind of the election and cast your vote and do it in a form informed way you know how do you look at litigation as a way of exercising your kind of civic duties and and supporting litigation as an exercise of, of your civic duty? Yeah, I think it's essential because, as you as you alluded to, then um, what we're grappling with is not a conservative movement; it's a reactionary populist movement that's actually seeking to undermine the principles of our Westminster democracy, remove a pillar of 
of, of governance that is there very deliberately to keep a check and balance on, on the elected representatives and to, to couch that in terms that that's somehow more in keeping with the will of the people. So to fight what is a reactionary populist right-wing agenda with a reactionary populist left-wing agenda would, would get us much further into trouble and really... Uh, it behooves all of us to be small c conservative when it comes to protecting the institutions that have held our democracy in good stead. Because um, really what, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but when you do see, um, and we're not at that stage in Australia yet, but when you do see governments stripping back the power of the judiciary or trying to, you know, rid me of these meddlesome priests in the Shakespearean term, you're seeing really a step towards a fascist or authoritarian state in which there is no control on the power of the popularly elected um, government, but what popularly elected then means is is not what it used to either, um, because people are making those decisions in a fully informed way. Um, so it really is. It's a very important um, essay, and I think what you've done with it is, without being at all um, alarmist or hyperbolic, you've really laid out how this happens in Australia, how it is different than in the US, and as we've talked about today, so clearly around who controls our land, whether that's about immigration or First Nations people or land rights, um, but that these attacks are there and they are growing and they're growing in boldness and will since the referendum. I just want to remind um, people to put any questions in the Q&A. I can see we've got one, which is kind of, um, I think we're in a good position to take this now. Um, it's from Roger Tonkin and he says, how vulnerable to and how resilient against is our law, our democracy and our public interest to the misinformation and disinformation that's now prevalent in public debate and in all forms of media. Um, uh, do you want to just reflect on that a little for Yeah, us? I mean, one of the things that I love about using litigation is that when you get into court, it does not matter the BS that <laughs> you want to come up with. It's not going to work. And that's I think you see that in, you know, in watching former politicians or politicians totally squirm when they're when they're under inquiry by former judges. I mean, you see Catherine Holmes in her inquiry with, with Scott Morrison um, in relation to RoboDebt, you know, she was not taking any BS. You know, she, she was, you know, asking very directly, answer the question, answer the question, stick to the question. And he, he or anyone cannot get away in that context, in that dynamic from the truth. Mm. Um, and that's the thing that I really love about the court and the role of it increasingly over time as we see this sort of influx of mis and disinformation that is likely to, to get much, much worse mm. if it gets better mm. um, at all uh, before if it gets better. Um, and I think, you know, that's why to me destroying or degrading the role of the court is even more dangerous in this context because because people know it is the last place that you can't get away with spin and PR. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, that example they gave previously that, you know, in Santa Teresa, the government had claimed $2 million in, in dodgy rental debts, essentially to try and get rid of the case, mm. got into court, the tribunal immediately said, where's your evidence? They said, oh, can we have an adjournment so we can try and find some? They came back after the adjournment, sorry, we don't have any evidence to substantiate the claim, The you know, tribunal trucks it out. But, you know, this happens all the time and it is because of the role of the court being interested in fact that, you know, you actually have a decent outcome. Um, and, you know, there was, an, I mean, just another example from the Territory, you know, a similar, another win that actually didn't get a lot of coverage because it was sort of happened around the referendum time, but um, uh, Larambo, a community also in the Territory, which has had a similar series of litigation, um, 
residents in Laramba, their taps were producing drinking water that had two and a half times the safe level of uranium. Um, uranium is not something I want at any safe drinking level personally, and I don't think anybody does, but, you know, that's to give you a mind for scale of how bad the, the water was and, and is across the territory actually just because of naturally um, occurring uranium um, in the bore water. And, you know, you could fix that problem if you if you wanted to as the territory government, as the landlord, by installing reverse osmosis filtration taps that you can buy at Bunnings. It's like an attachment. It's so freaking simple to try and to stop poisoning people who are renting off you. Um, and, you know, at one point we had this sort of dilemma of saying, you know, do we, do we just go and actually go and install these taps because it's ridiculous, like, you know, during the length of this litigation and the community decided, no, we want to just focus on the litigation, keep going and establish the precedent and, and not have any risk to it. But in the process of the litigation, before they got a win, which was to say, no, territory government, you do have to provide safe drinking water to these homes, the government installed a safe filtration system in the community, a multi-million dollar safe water facility which was great, but, you know, it's clearly designed quite cynically to avoid the precedent. And I think that's the thing about missing disinformation. You know, the government could go and say, yeah, we've solved the water problem. You know, the, we've provided safe filtration systems in Laramba, but the court doesn't let them, that's not enough for the court. It's not enough to have like a positive story to have covered the bases. They've actually, you know, have to actually um, have a legal standard applied. In terms of the role of the law going forward on mis and disinformation, I mean, I think that's the kind of million-dollar question at the moment for a lot of people, certainly something that we're working on. I mean, I think it's really difficult that so long as social media companies and media companies, their profits are completely resulting from algorithms that depend on clickable, shareable um, yeah. information. You know, we know that that mis and disinformation does, you know, meet the needs of that algorithm and until those profit systems are changed and regulated better I, I don't know how it changes but I also don't really know how likely that pathway is to being achieved I mean the EU was sort of trying and you know we'll kind of have to watch the space I think. It's a particularly challenging space of course because um, America being culturally dominant in this field and having uh, freedom of speech and uh, as it's as its number one public cultural concern uh, puts us at odds with some of those European attempts. And um, stay tuned for a per capita development in that space. It's an area that I've long been passionate about and the public square. So um, we'd be doing some work there similarly and should have a chat about that. <laughs> um, another question from Roger, and I think this one actually this is interesting because I think it, it speaks to what you were talking about before about the democratic principles that the law seeks to uphold. Mm. Um, uh, so Roger says here, terms such as democracy and equality don't actually exist in the Constitution. So how can the Constitution have any role in the protection of either? It's really what you were getting at in terms of those principles. Yeah. yeah. So I think the, the way to understand it best is through actually those implied freedom decisions, so those original decisions. So you go back to the 80s and what the court found there is, okay, you look at the the, the constitution as a whole what is it is what does it try and achieve responsible and representative government yep. and understanding what those words mean and obviously you know 
with law always with language there is you know vagary but that you know there are they come to be over time sort of accepted definitions and boundaries to those words and the court basically said in order for the, those aspects of the constitution that imbue it's the whole point of the constitution for for that to be sustained there must be an implied freedom to political communication um and so what that means to me is you kind of are going back to those principles of of um, representative and responsible government what is the point of our constitution and that thus can then be, be used to inform those other kind of, um, you know, principles such as democracy. Um, equality is a different sort of question. And I think um, for questions like equality, um, it's, democracy is particularly relevant when you're talking about constitutional issues, but the High Court deals with all sorts of issues all the time. It doesn't just deal with constitutional issues. Um, and I think the thing that's most important for it to be able to um, provide um it, it, it's not the role really of the courts to provide justice in that kind of popular sense of justice, right? It, it's to provide account. I think accountability is a better frame to look at it. Um, but, you know, we actually have, I think, that, you know, really what the court's role is in terms of those equality principles is upholding legislation that provides rights. Um, and while we are, you know, we don't have a national charter of rights and that is a serious problem in this country and puts us out of step with the rest of the kind of like world, um, what we do is have vast legislative rights, um, you know, across all sorts of things. And, you know, that you can see in, reflected in the remote housing and water cases, you know, that's using Residential Tenancies Act legislation. There's no kind of like fancy, sexy equality sort of right there. It's just everybody in the in the country has a right to re under Residential Tenancies Acts. Um, and so I think that's a way of looking at it and looking at the role of the court. It's really about enforcing those legislated rights. And at a practical level of how you enable that to happen, it kind of gets you to these sort of technical things that I spend a lot of my time kind of working on and thinking about, which is how do you actually enforce those rights and, and who has the ability to enforce those rights? So, you know, in a kind of climate context, regulators like ASIC and the ACCC have the power to, to kind of um, enforce rights around greenwashing. But they are actively stating that they are waiting for essentially civil society to achieve the precedence through courts for them to follow. Um, and that's because of the degree of regulatory capture in this country. But I think what that, my point is that in making legislation and making new legislation, we've got to be thinking about who is, has the ability to enforce that legislation. So if you want to kind of create new rights in respect of missing disinformation, or you want to make new rights in respect of gender or, you know, whatever it might be, you've got to make sure that there is the ability for citizens to actually bring those enforcement mechanisms to court so that the court has an opportunity to uphold those equality principles that exist already inherently in the litigation, sorry, in the legislation that we have in Parliament. But protecting our courts is really, really important. Um, and other than reading your excellent essay, and I do um, point everyone back to the chat where you can click on a link, um, get a discount and buy a copy of this. If you're not subscribed to this series, why not? It's a fantastic series. Um, but I've also put in the chat the link to the Grata Fund's website um, because people can get involved, can't they, Isabel? They can donate or they can even volunteer to help your work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, please definitely get in touch. I mean, I think... Some of the, the kind of mechanisms that we focus on are things like making it more affordable to get to court so that citizens can actually bring those accountability um, pieces of litigation. 
Fantastic. Um, look, that's we're pretty much out of time, but thank you so much for joining us to talk about this essay. Um, it is really, I'm, I read it very quickly uh, the first time and then went back and you know made my notes for today. Um, it's very readable. You're an excellent writer, Isabel, I have to say. It's a lovely uh, essay, even though enraging at times. Um, but thank you so much. Um, please do, everyone, jump onto the Grata Funds website. Um, I know we've got quite a few um, people here today from the philanthropic sector and some with quite a lot of legal uh, background as well. So if you want to volunteer or donate to the organisation. Yeah, so, or sign up to our kind of our newsletter. We've actually got we've got a huge few weeks coming up. So the, the um, climate matter, the negligence climate case coming out of the Torres Strait, which I mentioned, had the on-country hearings in June. We're going to be in Melbourne for three weeks from next week because the expert testimony is starting. So that's going to be lots of fun. So if anyone's in Melbourne and wants to pop into the federal court, let me know because it's it's going to be really interesting, I think. Might try and see you there. Um, it'd be lovely <laughs> to catch up with you anyway. But um, yeah, do, do. Um, it is a very worthwhile uh, project to support. And particularly, you can see today um, the results of some of that support that you've had from the community in such a fantastic outcome in the High Court. Congratulations Thanks. again. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone for coming. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Bye. <laughs>